Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 14, as we continue to make our way through the book of 1 Samuel, we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 23 this morning. Let me read our passage for us, and then we will pause and take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we do every week as we come under the truth and authority of His Word. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozaz and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was great confusion. 
Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Let's pray together. Father, we are trusting right now, as we trust every week, that you intend to be at work in us through the truth and authority of your word. And Father, we want to take just a moment to pause and thank you for the new mercies you have shown to us already this day. We don't deserve the grace and mercy you have shown to us. We don't deserve to be here, to have the privilege of fellowshipping with your people. We don't have the we don't deserve the privilege of being here to sing together and pray together and hear your word proclaimed together, but it is all a gift to us, bought for us by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so, Father, even now, I pray that you would fix our eyes on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand, that we would be mindful of the grace and mercy shown to us that has allowed us to be here together this morning. And so we are proclaiming our hope completely and fully in the finished, complete work of Christ this morning as life, his death, and his resurrection. And so, Father, we are thankful because of what Jesus has done, that you have sent your spirit to dwell in all of those who trust in Christ. And so, Father, we ask you, as we ask every single week, that you would be at work in us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would give us the bold, courageous faith of Jonathan. Father, we can't muster it up in our own strength. We can't make such things happen. But by the power of your spirit, we are asking you to grant us this kind of faith. And I pray as we reflect on verses 1 through 23 of chapter 14, that we would see your sovereignty on display, the bigness of who you are, that you are the God in whom Jonathan trusted. And so I pray that you would develop within us a deep and abiding sense of your sovereignty and rule over all things so that we would have the same kind of confident faithfulness that Jonathan had in these verses. So Father, we are trusting you this morning. We are asking you to do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think among us. And Father, I pray once again that you would protect my words, that you would guide us into all truth, that I would not say anything that would lead your people astray that would lead us off of the path of truth. And so, Father, we just pray that you would help us to pursue your truth this morning for our good and for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This may be obvious, but it's really hard to be faithful when everyone around you is unfaithful. It's really hard to be faithful when everyone around you is unfaithful. I'll never forget one of my favorite sports stories. One of my favorite Kobe Bryant stories is uh, about his first Olympic team that he played on. So back in the 2008 Beijing Summer Games, this is what was called the Redeem Team. The days of Michael Jordan were behind. The best NBA players weren't going to the Olympics anymore. They had been defeated. And so they were gathering up the best of the NBA players again to go to the Olympics in 2008. And Kobe Bryant was on that team. Well, leading up to the Olympics, they needed to practice, of course. And so they did that here in the States. And so they gathered up all the, the best of the best NBA players. LeBron James was there and others. And they go to Las Vegas to practice. 
may not have been the wisest decision to have some of the wealthiest men in sports, young men there in Las Vegas to practice, but that's the decision they made. One of the first nights they were there, of course, they did what you would expect, and essentially the entire team went out for a night of partying. They were out all night, 5.30 in the morning, 5.30 a.m., they make their way back into the hotel. They're walking through the lobby to head to their rooms at 5.30 in the morning, and as they're walking in the lobby, Kobe Bryant's walking out of the lobby, and they said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to go work out. Kobe was different. In fact, one of the players puts it this way. As we were going in the elevator up to our rooms, we're like, did you hear that? We're all talking like this guy's really dedicated. Next thing you know, it goes from just Kobe at 5.30 in the morning to LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. And by the end of the week, the whole team was getting up every morning and we were now on Kobe's schedule. You see, Kobe Bryant was different. He wasn't going out partying, may have been the best player on the team, but he had work to do and he was there to do the work. He was different. He was unique. He kept his mind focused on the goal, even when nobody else around him. And that first night anyway, seemed to care. Well, in a similar way, it seems that everyone in Israel was unwilling to step up. We're in chapter 14. Nobody in Israel was willing to step up, trust God and defeat the Philistines. Even though it has been clear for a number of chapters now that that's one of the reasons why a God anointed Saul to be king. He was to free Israel from the oppression of the Philistines, and yet nobody is doing anything about it. But Saul's son, Jonathan, was different. There was something different about him. So one of the key questions I want to ask this morning, and Lord willing, answer is, what made Jonathan different? Why was he willing to step up when nobody else would? Now, it may sound like I want to do some kind of character study about Jonathan, and that's not the goal at all, because ultimately the answer to that question, what made Jonathan different? The answer to that question is that what made him different is what he believed about God. What made Jonathan different is what he believed about God. You see, last week in chapter 13, we saw what happens when a group of people have what I would call a small God theology. They have a small God theology. And so it led them to have a fear of man that outweighed their fear of God. And we saw last week in chapter 13 that it, it led to Saul robbing God of the glory that God alone deserved and taking credit for himself. It led to people running away from the, from the Philistines in fear. In chapter 13, it says they went and hid in holes and caves and even in tombs to get away from the threat of the Philistines. And then not only that, we saw that it caused Saul himself to rebel against God through pragmatic disobedience. He justified his rebellion by his own wisdom, his own reasons. And in doing so, he ended up disobeying God and having his dynasty removed from him. This week, however, we get to see a different story. We don't see the story of the unfaithful, the men who had what I would call a small God theology. Instead, we see a man, namely Jonathan, who has a big God theology. And he lets that big God theology drive his decisions. You see, Jonathan has a healthy fear of the Lord. He has a healthy fear of the Lord that drives his actions, that, that determines what he's going to be about. Jonathan, unlike Saul, is not worried about getting the glory for himself because he knows the glory belongs to God alone. He's not worried about who's standing on the other side of the battle because he knows God is standing on his side of the battle. 
Jonathan's not worried about a list of pros and cons and making these pragmatic decisions and justifications in his head because when he makes a list of pros and cons, it doesn't matter what's on the con side because God is on the pro side. See, Jonathan had a theology of a big God, a sovereign God who ruled over all things. And so in the end, what makes Jonathan different is that he simply trusts the faithfulness, the mercy, and the sovereignty of God. And so what I want us to do this morning is just see the greatness of the God in whom Jonathan is trusting. Let's see the greatness of that God so that we can step in with Jonathan, have that same kind of faith as we develop this understanding of the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty and the mercy and the grace of God on display in 1 Samuel 14 verses 1 through 23. And my prayer is that as we develop within ourselves the same theology of God that Jonathan has, it will lead us to have the same kind of confident, bold faith that he had. So here are three truths about God in this passage I want us to see this morning. Number one, God saves through difficult circumstances. Number two, God saves through many or few. And number three, God saves the failures, traitors, and cowards. God saves through difficult circumstances. He saves through many or few. God saves failures, traitors, and cowards. Let's look first at this truth that God saves through difficult circumstances. Look there with me again at verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 begins immediately with this confidence of Jonathan telling his armor bearer what they are going to do. You see that there in verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And then we see him say essentially something similar in verse 6, where he repeats that phrase to his armor bearer, though he adds theology to it that we'll look at later. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. But what's interesting is what we're told about between those two statements from Jonathan to his armor bearer. Let's go to the garrison of the Philistines. Let's go attack them. But the author of Samuel wants to set something up for us. He wants to give us the context of what it is that Jonathan is stepping into. Why is this such a unique act of faith and courage on Jonathan's part? Why is this an expression of Jonathan's confidence in the sovereignty of God? Now, if you recall back in chapter 13, verse 3, Jonathan's already gone to battle against one of the garrisons of the Philistines. In fact, we learn there that with just basically a peasant army of a thousand In chapter 13, because remember, Israel, we learn at the end of chapter 13, didn't have weapons. The Philistines kept them from having weapons. They didn't have swords. They didn't have spears. They just had farm instruments, mattocks, axes. They went into battle. Jonathan, with a thousand men, defeated one of the Philistine garrisons in chapter 13. But now, now Jonathan's going to do it with 998 less people. (laughs) It's him and his armor bearer saying, Let's go to the other side. And how this is framed is really important. So between Jonathan's two statements of confidence about going over to the other side, we learn why this was a difficult circumstance for Jonathan to be in. So first look at verse 2, this description of Saul that we're given. Well, we're first at the end of verse 1 told that Jonathan didn't even tell his father what his plans were. We don't know exactly why, but we can speculate it's because Jonathan thought if he told Saul that one of two things was going to happen. Either Saul was going to say, that's stupid. I'm not going to let you do that. There's no way you're going over there with just you and your armor bearer. 
Or secondly, and perhaps more likely, Jonathan knew that if Saul knew it was going to happen, he was going to find a way to take the glory for it. And Jonathan wanted God to get the glory. And then we had this description of Saul in verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate. The ESV says cave. Almost every other translation says tree at Migron. Now look at the contrast between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan says, come, let us go, right? Jonathan's going. What is Saul doing? He's staying. Jonathan says, let's go to the other side. Let's go over there where the Philistines are. Saul's over here staying. He's either chilling under a pomegranate tree and not doing what he's supposed to be doing, which is going to battle against the Philistines, or he's one of the cowards who ran and hid in the caves and the tombs and the holes in the ground. Whichever it is, tree or cave, it's not a good description of Saul, right? The point is, Saul's not doing what he ought to do. The king of Israel is failing to lead his people. In other words, the king of Israel, who is supposed to free God's people from the oppressive Philistines, continues to do nothing. And his worthlessness is highlighted even more by the company he keeps. Look there with me in verse 3. This tells us that Ahijah is there with him. Ahijah was the person Saul was looking to as the priest. But what is fascinating and so interesting is that the author of Samuel intentionally takes time to tell us who this Ahijah is. He is the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Now, why is that significant? Well, Remember, when we were earlier in 1 Samuel, we learned a lot about Eli and Phinehas. Eli is Phinehas' father. Eli essentially served as the high priest at the time. Phinehas and his brother served in the temple as, as priests. And these were wicked, despicable men. Eli's sons, Phinehas and his brother, would take the sacrifice from God's people. They would rob God's people of the sacrifices they were bringing to offer to God. And they would go eat it for themselves. Wicked, despicable men. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it also describes Phineas and his brother as laying with women at the gate, at the entrance of the temple. These were wicked, terrible men. And Eli did nothing about it. It seems that he participated at least in the eating of the stolen food because Samuel describes him as getting fat on the sacrifices of the people. And so because of Eli's indifference, Eli's participation in what his sons were doing, Phineas and his brother... God tells Eli through Samuel, when Samuel was just a boy, that the priesthood would be removed from the house of Eli, it would be taken from him, and then Eli and his sons would die. But right after Phinehas died, his wife gave birth to a son whose name was Ichabod, and the name Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. So here's Asia, who is the nephew of Ichabod, the glory of God has departed, the grandson of Phinehas, the great-grandson of Eli. Now, why is that significant? This is how one commentator put it. Quote, here are the leaders. Sitting there is Saul, whose dynasty has been rejected, assisted by Ahijah, whose priestly line has been rejected. These are a group of men that God has rejected and they're doing nothing about the Philistine threat. So that's obstacle number one. Israel has no meaningful leadership remaining. Now, if there was any excuse Jonathan could have had for not bothering to go over to the other side of the Philistines, it would be, well, nobody else is going to do it. Why would I? 
If my leader's not going to do it, if the king is not going to do it, why am I going to lay my life down, right? Why would I do it? But you see, Jonathan isn't interested in excuses. He's not interested in justifications for disobedience. He's interested in entrusting the sovereign God of Israel and doing what is right. And as if that wasn't enough, the author also wants to make clear that the terrain to get from one side to the other is not a great situation. That's why we're given this description in verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The point is saying, in order for Jonathan and his armor bearer to get to the Philistine garrison, they're going to have to climb down essentially one cliff, walk across a valley, and if you know anything about military strategy, you don't want to be on the low side. You want to have the high ground. So here's Jonathan completely exposing himself in the low ground, And then we will see later to get up to the Philistine garrison, he literally has to crawl on his hands and feet to get to them. Completely vulnerable position, right? One arrow takes him out, no problem. So there are a lot of reasons Jonathan had not to go to the other side. The king won't go, the leadership is indifferent, and it's going to be militarily unwise to take the path he needs to take to get to the garrison of the Philistines to begin with. But Jonathan takes the excuses of difficult circumstances and he throws them in the garbage heap of human reason. And he says, it simply doesn't matter because God is sovereign and he's the God of Israel and he's on our side. Listen, this is, by the way, one reason why we should be cautious in saying when we face difficult circumstances, well, it's clear that God has closed the door on that. Look, it is certainly true that there are times that God uses circumstances to make clear that he doesn't want us to continue on in something, but it is not always the case. We should not determine God's will for our lives based on how hard it might be to walk in obedience to him, right? Because you can imagine, think about if Jonathan had done that. Think about if Jonathan had framed the situation this way, like trying to make a decision, should I go to the garrison of the Philistines or not? And let's say he decided not to. And somebody says, Jonathan, well, why didn't you go over there and obey God and trust his sovereign hand and attack the Philistines, even though, you know, it was just you and your armor bearer. And I think if I put it into kind of modern language, this is what Jonathan would say. Well, you know, I just had this real clear sense that the Lord had closed the door on us trying to attack the Philistines because our king was clearly not giving us the support that we needed. And And so it just didn't seem that God was in it. And so the door had been closed and the terrain was really less than ideal for a full frontal attack from one crag to the other. So the situation was just really difficult. And it's just, you know, because of the difficulty of it, because Saul wasn't behind us, it just seems the Lord was making really clear that that's not what he wanted us to do. He just, the Lord just really closed the door on that situation. Now that's a terrible way to think, right? There are times, there are times when a question of obedience arises and the Lord has clearly called us to something when he wants us to walk through the door of difficult circumstances. Now, I want to be cautious here. I don't think you've sinned (laughs) to say that the the, the Lord has closed the door on a situation because it's difficult. That does happen. There are times when God makes clear that a certain path is not the way he wants us to take and we need to trust him in that. But having said that, 
when it comes to questions of obedience and something the Lord has clearly called us to, then we don't need to try to read the tea leaves of our circumstances. No, in those moments, we're called to obey and to trust the Lord and let him take care of the rest. That's what Jonathan is doing. He knows that this Philistine army should not be standing. God has declared it so. Israel was to be freed from their oppressive enemy. And therefore, he is going to obey the Lord no matter what the circumstances are. And so our desire to obey the Lord through difficult days, like Jonathan, will in the end directly correspond to the bigness of your theology of God. If you are believing in a small God where you let the fear of man overrun your fear of God, you're not going to step into difficult circumstances. But if you believe in the big, the sovereign, the majestic God that Jonathan believed in, the God of the Bible, then you will be ready to walk in courage and bold faith and confident obedience, even when it may not seem sensible, even when it may seem that the circumstances are too difficult for us to walk through. So the Lord can save through difficult circumstances. It is on display here. But secondly, God saves through many or few, by many or by few. Look there with me at verses 6 through 15. Jonathan, once again, repeats the plan to his armor bearer. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, this time, Jonathan just doesn't say, let's go over to the garrison of the Philistines. He says it and loads it with theology. So I just want you to see all of the truth contained in this statement that Jonathan makes to his armor bearer. First, he says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. So he doesn't call them Philistines here. Jonathan is making this a spiritual issue at this point. He is saying these are not God's covenant people. They're not the circumcised. They are the uncircumcised. They are outside of God's covenant people. They are enemies of God. Therefore, this is a spiritual issue. This is not a military issue. This is not a nation state issue. This is a matter of the reputation of the name of God. These men are standing as enemies of the living God of Israel. And therefore, we need to go over and take care of business. Secondly, notice what he says in that second sentence of verse 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Some translations say, perhaps the Lord will work for us. In other words, at this point, Jonathan is not presuming on the grace of God. Jonathan knows what he's called to do. He knows that he's called to be obedient, but he doesn't know the outcome. Now, some people look at a situation like this and say, well, man, that's a lack of faith. Maybe God will save me. Maybe he won't. Well, there's lots of times God doesn't guarantee our outcomes, but he still wants us to walk in obedience. There are times when he wants us to walk in obedience, and it may mean that we lose our lives, right? The history of Christianity is filled with martyrs who laid down their life for the sake of the gospel. It's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They said, throw us in the fire, don't throw us in the fire. We're not going to bow down to your statue, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. And here's Jonathan saying, look, we're going to obey. It may be that God is going to lead us to victory. It may not be that he works for us in victory. But Jonathan knows he will be with them regardless. And then finally, of course, he says, it may be he will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. In other words, Jonathan is saying, if the Lord doesn't save us, it's not because he's unable to. <laughs> it's not because he can't. 
It doesn't matter how many of us there are. It doesn't matter if there's one of us, if there's two of us, or if like Saul earlier in chapter 11, or if there's 330,000 of you, it doesn't matter how many there are. The size of the army doesn't matter. What matters is the sovereignty of the living God. And so we know clearly that this is not a lack of faith on Jonathan's part. He knows that God is able. The question is, is God willing? And he doesn't yet know the answer to that question. Nevertheless, verse 7, his armor bearer says to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. I am with you heart and soul. I just want to mention that as a brief aside, because I want us to see the difference that faithful leadership makes. Because in the earlier chapter, back in chapter 13, Saul is a coward. He will not do what God has called him to do. He fails to fear the Lord. And because King Saul is a coward, what happens in chapter 13, verse 6? When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. But when Jonathan steps up and he's willing to faithfully trust in the Lord, his armor bearer doesn't go running. He says, I'm with you. Let's go. Let's go. Now, still at this point, though, Jonathan doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. So he says, look, here's the plan. We're going to go down into the valley and we're going to show ourselves to the Philistine garrison. If they say to us, stay there and we're going to come to you, then the Lord has not given us the victory. Now, I don't know what plan B was at that point. (laughs) He doesn't specify, right? Do they go running back to the other side? I have no idea. But he says, if they say stay there, then the Lord hasn't given us the victory. But if they call us up, then we know that God has given us the victory. And sure enough, we see there in verse 11, they show themselves, the Philistines see them. We see this mockery that the Philistines use against them. The Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. Again, by the way, the people of Israel have brought shame to the name of God, that they're able to be mocked by the enemies of God because they have hidden in holes. And so the the Philistine army mocks the men of Israel and say, here they are coming out of their holes. In verse 12, they call Jonathan and his armor bearer up and they say, come up to us and we will show you a thing. I don't know what the thing was. It's kind of a weird statement, but nonetheless, they're saying, come on up, right? It's probably they think they have them in a trap perhaps, or maybe they think they are defecting to the other side because we know there were many of Israel who did defect to the Philistines and we will see that later. And so once they invite them up, Jonathan now knows that the Lord has given them into their hands. You see that there in the second half of verse 12. He says to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now, I love that statement. Jonathan does not say the Lord has given them into my hand. No, he says he's given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan knows this isn't just about him It's about God's people and leading God's people to victory over the enemies of God. And so they make their way. And this is what I mentioned earlier, verse 13. They have to climb up on their hands and feet and the armor bearer after him. They're literally crawling up the rocky crag to get to the Philistine garrison. I mean, at any point, the Philistines could take them out. No problem. But they crawl up. They get up there, and then it says, it gives a description where what you should essentially picture is half an acre of land is about what's being talked about here. And inside a half of acre of land, Jonathan just walks into the camp of the Philistines and starts taking people out. 20 well-armed Philistine soldiers in a half acre of land cannot stop him. 
Apparently, Jonathan's just like knocking them out. He's not killing them. And then it says his armor bearer is cleaning up the mess behind him and killing the rest of them. It's an interesting description. I don't know. I even wonder, like, because it just says they fell before Jonathan. I mean, it could be that God supernaturally just Jonathan walks through and, and these guys are just parting like the Red Sea and they're just falling down. And then his armor bearer is cutting their heads off. I have no idea. But regardless of what's happening, God's doing the work against these 20 men, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are putting very little effort into this, and God wipes them out. And as a result, verse 15, there's panic in the camp, and among all the people, even the raiders that we learned about in chapter 13 that have been raiding the camps of Israel are trembling, and even the earth quaked, and God caused the earth to quake, and it caused a very great panic among the Philistines. All that from two guys walking into the camp. You see, God is able to save by many or by few, and Jonathan knew that. So Jonathan didn't worry about the head cow before he obeyed the Lord. He didn't worry about gathering other people up to him. It's interesting, a little bit later in chapter 14, we're going to learn that Saul gathers up valiant men everywhere he goes, and here's Jonathan not worrying about it. He's not worried about it. He knows that just he and his armor bearer are enough if God is on their side. So what gave Jonathan the confidence to know that numbers don't matter to God? Well, he simply did what Samuel asked them to do. We've talked about this lots over the past few weeks, but the end of chapter 12, Samuel says to God's people, including Saul and Jonathan, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. You see, Jonathan had spent a lifetime considering what great things God had done. And if we join Jonathan in that venture of considering what great things God has done, we too will have this kind of bold confidence. Look, this is one of the reasons why in this church we continually encourage you to have a Bible reading plan. We don't tell you what kind of plan, but some kind of plan to work your way through God's word. Because you need to read the stories of the Old Testament. You need to see and consider the great things that God has done so that you can build your confidence in God, so that you can see the bigness of who God is, so that you can see the sovereignty of his hand, so that you can be reminded that this God who we serve, this God who is for us through the finished work of Jesus is the God who spoke the world into existence. He's the God who holds all things together by the word of his power. He's the God who rescued people out of Egypt by sending plague after plague after plague just so that he could continue to show how powerful and mighty he was to the watching nations. It is the God who led his people out of Egypt with riches beyond measure because the Egyptians just handed it over to them and they walk out and he protects them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as they are waiting at the Red Sea for it to part through the night, he has a pillar of fire behind them, protecting them from the coming army of the Egyptians. And the water spreads and they walk across on dry land with the army coming at their hills and God crashes the water over them. And that's just the very beginning of the Bible. And it's story after story after story after story of God's sovereign power on display. So if you want to be like Jonathan, you've got to know the God that Jonathan believed in. And the way you know that is by being a student of God's word. Part of that is coming on Sunday morning and hearing God's word preached. Part of that is participating in a life group and discussing God's word. Part of that is going to Bible studies that we offer if that works for your schedule. But one of the biggest parts of it is you just working your way through God's word each and every day. And as you do, I promise you, you will begin to develop the faith of Jonathan. 
because you will see the God that he sees. And God will use that by the power of his spirit to give you faith to walk in obedience, even when circumstances are difficult, even when the odds seem to be stacked against you. You keep your eyes on the sovereign God that we see in God's word. So we see that God saves the difficult circumstances. We see that God saves by many or by few. It doesn't matter. And then finally, this third truth about God I want us to see is that God saves the failures, the traitors, and the cowards. Look with me at verses 16 through 23. Man, I love meditating on these last, this last section of chapter 14, especially as we head into communion together this morning. Look, the scene changes we're away for now from the camp of the Philistines and we're back in the camp of Israel. And apparently these, these rocky crags where both camps were located are close enough for Saul's watchmen to see what's happening in the camp across the way. And they see this turmoil, this panic that's happening in the camp. And Saul knows something is up. Someone has gone over there to cause this. And so they try to get account of who in the world is missing, who went over there, because they had no clue. And they realize that it's Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing, and they must be the ones that are over there. And so Saul being Saul in verse 18 makes preparations so that Saul would get the glory. <laughs> and so he says to Ahijah, look, bring the ark over here. I'm going to come in and save the day. Now, We've already learned a lesson about using the ark as a good luck rabbit's foot, right? That happened earlier in 1 Samuel. The last time Israel did this, where they thought bringing the ark into the camp would, would just bring them automatic victory, they went in, they were defeated, and the Philistines took the ark. And Saul should have known it, but here's, here's the great-grandson of the high priest who was there in that day trying to make the same mistake all over again. And the reason I know all Saul's concerned about is getting glory for himself is because it says that in verse 19, that while he's talking to the priest, trying to get the ark ready, he sees the tumult in the camp of the Philistines getting even crazier. And Saul says, just forget it, Ahijah, withdraw your hand. I've got to get over there before it's over so that I can get the credit. <laughs> Saul wants the glory and he wants to get over there before the battle is over. Now, Saul does go, and the 600 men who are with him rally, and they go with him into the battle. But what do we learn even when Saul gets into the battle? Does Saul do anything? No, what does it say? Every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. This has nothing to do with Saul. And look, by the way, we learned at the end of chapter 13 that all Israel was armed with was farm instruments. The reason why? Because they don't need swords, because God can just use the swords of their enemies against themselves. This is the sovereignty of God on display. But what I want you to notice is that even though Saul does nothing of value, even though he's a wicked man in so many ways, there's something beautiful I want us to see about the grace and mercy of God on display in verses 16 through 23. I think intentionally so. There's a description of three different groups in verses 20, 21, and 22. So first, verse 21 is Saul himself. We've already seen this. Saul is a failed king. His dynasty has been removed from him. In so many different ways, Saul is a failure. And then in verse 21, we have this other description. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul. So what's happening here is verse 21 is describing a group of Hebrews who had defected to the Philistines. There's a group of Israelites, of the people of God, who were so threatened by the Philistines, so fearful that they just decided to join ranks with the Philistines. They thought that would be the safer place to be. They were there as enemies of God. 
They were traitors, right? They had sided with, provided support for God's enemies. That's the description that's happening in verse 21. And so they fully deserved when there was confusion in the camp. What those men deserved is for the sword of the Philistines and the confusion to strike them down also. That's not, it's not what God does. He spares their life and allows them to fight with the rest of the people of God. So you have Saul, the failure. You have the traitors in verse 21. And then we have the cowards in verse 22. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, we learned about them back in chapter 13. These were those who went and hid in the, in the holes and the caves and the tombs and the cisterns, right? They had sought safety. They had hidden themselves because they were so fearful of man instead of fearing God. And here they are in verse 22. Now these men of Israel who had hidden themselves and they heard the Philistines were fleeing. Now that the Philistines are running away, they're bold and courageous men. And they go running into the battle to fight and followed hard after them in battle. Now look, every single one of these categories, Saul the failure, the traitors, the cowards, fully deserved to be struck down by God for their faithlessness. That's what they deserved. But what does verse 23 say? So the Lord saved Israel that day. I think the author intentionally tells us about the failures, the traitors, and the cowards who were a part of Israel, but God still saved them that day. This is the mercy and grace of our sovereign God on display here in the Old Testament. We've talked about it many times. People so often want to say the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, the God of the New Testament is the God of mercy and grace. And I think we've seen time after time after time after time of First Samuel that that dichotomy is just not true. <laughs> he is so merciful and gracious here in verses 16 through 23. And what we have in 16 through 23 is an echo of the gospel. We have an echo of the gospel because this, my friends, is the gospel character of God on display, that God is willing to take those who are failures, traitors, and cowards, save them, and allow them to join him in his victory. That is the gospel. I'll remind you that Romans 5.10 says that we were enemies of God. We were traitors. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says that we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were on Satan's team. We were following his lead. We are just like the traitors in the camp of the Philistines. But praise be to God what Ephesians 2 goes on to say. And I'll remind us beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God takes his enemies, those who were on Satan's team, who followed the prince of the power of the air, and he saves us. 
And not only does he save us, it says that he did it so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us. He took his enemies and he pours out grace on us and he doesn't just keep us neutral. No, he wants to shower us and pour out on us immeasurable, unthinkable graces on us for all of eternity. And not only that, verse 10 says, look, all the good works that he's called us to do, he's laid them out before us and we just have to walk in them. Just like all Jonathan had to do, all Saul had to do, the failure, all the traitors had to do, all the cowards had to do, is just walk into the camp and watch God win. This is the mercy and grace of our Savior. Jesus came and took on flesh and laid down his life to save his enemies, to save a bunch of cowards, to save a bunch of traitors, and to adopt us and to make us his children. This is the sovereign grace and mercy of our God on display. You see, we can make excuses all day long about not obeying the Lord, but Jonathan shows us how belief in the sovereign, gracious, merciful God of the Bible puts all excuses to death. Difficult circumstances can't hold him back. God doesn't need vast resources. He doesn't need big numbers. He doesn't need small numbers. He doesn't need any particular numbers to accomplish his purposes. And finally, he's ready to save the worst of sinners and allow them to walk with him in his victory. By his grace, we get to participate in the victory that he's already won. This is our big God on display. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your mercy and grace to us through the good news of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would build within us a depth of understanding of, of your sovereignty, of your grace, and your mercy. And I pray that as that confidence, as that theology builds within our hearts, that you would give us the kind of faith that you gave to Jonathan in those days, and that we would be willing to obey you no matter the difficulty, no matter the odds, and to know that you are with us, even though we were once your enemies. So Father, we thank you for the saving power of the cross, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.